Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Glad to welcome those of you who are watching online. Thank you for that. And uh, on this rainy, rainy Sunday morning, I'm glad you're here for the service. We're in a series called Transformation, and we're seeing how God is using the experiences that we go through in life, the people we encounter in life, to transform us from what we were to what he would have us be. And one of the things he will use to transform our lives is adversity, problems, difficulties that we face in life. That song Susan did, uh, Charlie Chaplin actually wrote that song, and it kind of mirrored a character that he would often play in those silent films where it was a man who was facing adversity, but he learned to smile. He learned to understand that the best days are still ahead, and, and, and you can always look up, and you can always be hopeful. And that's exactly the, the theme that James wrote about. In James 1, he says, brothers and sisters, you can count it joy. You can know God has a, a, a purpose when you go into different types of trials. So James says it's possible. It's possible to smile. In the midst of adversity, it's possible to hold your head up high when you're going through a difficult time because we understand God has a purpose for the problems that we face. Now, how many of you guys would admit with me on a Sunday morning? Now, you're in church, so don't lie. How many of you admit you have at least one problem? You're not ashamed to admit that. I've got at least one problem. Anybody like that? All right, most everybody. How many would then admit that you're sitting next to one of those problems you've got in your life right now, right? Yep, that's pretty much the way it goes. Well, God is using, some of the kids are raising their hands, mom, <laughs> it reminds me of that one just comes about raising kids. This woman, the kids hit that zone in life where they were just giving her all kinds of trouble. And a friend asked her, she said, well, if you had to do it all over again, would you still have kids? She said, yeah, I just wouldn't have the same ones. <laughs> so anyway, no, the, the point is that God will use the problems we face in life. He'll use those problems to develop us, to enable us to achieve the things that he has designed for us to achieve. You're not going to go through life unscathed. You're not going to go through life without your heart being broken. It's just inevitable. It is a reality of life. It's going to happen. But what we understand as a Christ follower, once you've connected with your creator, you understand God has a reason. He has a purpose. He doesn't cause everything that happens to, happens, to happen, but he can take everything that happens and he can make those things ultimately work for our good and for his glory. Romans 8, 28, we know all things can work together for good to those who love God and those who are called to his purpose. So whatever you're going through this morning, whatever difficulty you're facing in life, understand God has a purpose for those problems and those things are there to help develop us. In fact, the, the, really the text of our series has been Romans 12, 2, where Paul was admonishing those Christians in that first century, he said, look, don't any longer allow your life to be conformed to the pattern of the world. Now, that's a, an expression that we would use in our vernacular today like this. We would say, don't buy into a secular system that does not include God in its thinking. That might be how I would describe that expression. The pattern of the world 
It's just a system that does not include God and how it thinks. Most people, as I've told you, are not theoretic atheists. They're more practical atheists. They just live their life as though God doesn't exist. And so I'm suggesting to you that Paul said it's possible to be connected to your creator. It's possible to have Christ living in your life and still not partner with him and be conformed to the pattern of the world. So he says, instead, be transformed. He uses that word, transformed. Uh, the word is also defined as metamorphosis in the biological world, scientific world, metamorphosis. So you remember from science class, that's the process whereby the caterpillar goes into the cocoon to emerge as the butterfly. It's a process <clears throat> that includes struggle. Remember, you don't get through life without pain. The butterfly emerges with a struggle. And then ultimately it becomes who God designed it to, to become, its highest form. And that's really what God is doing in our life. Romans 8, 29, that follows that all things work together thing said, God is trying to uh, transform us into the image of his son, the Imago Dei, the original design. God's taking us back through a process of problems to try to transform us, to make us look a little more like what he looks like. And so this is a part of transformation. It's the, the, really the theme of the series is to challenge you to embrace the idea, to commit to the idea of transformation, to no longer be conformed, but be transformed. Now, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, there's an interesting verse, and it's translated in some ways by, you can look at your life as though looking into a mirror. And what is reflecting back at you should be some of what God is. Uh, we use the word glory a lot. You see that in the Bible. It sounds Christianese, so let me explain it. The glory could be defined as everything God is. Everything that he is is glory. So when the Bible says unto him, be glory in the church, that expression just means may God be seen within his church. We're the body of Christ, so we ought to look like he looked like, and we ought to do what he did. And so unto him be glory in the church means that God should be reflected in the, and through the lives of the church collectively. But that's true of us individually. Paul was saying there in 2 Corinthians 3.18, I can see some of the glory of God being reflected back in my life. Um, let me give it to you this way. You ought to be able to look at your life honestly, um, you ought to have someone be able to look at you who love you best and know you uh, most. They ought to be able to look at your life and see some transformation. Uh, they ought to be able to look at your life and say, I can see some good changes in your life. I can affirm that for you. Now, one of the ways whereby you measure um, transformation in a spiritual context is by looking at Galatians 5, 22, 23, where he talks here about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit at work in a person's life. So string this together. God desires transformation. He'll use the problems in life to bring that about. You can see transformation and evaluate it by identifying the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love. We talked about that. Would you say you're more loving today than you were a year ago? Um, do you feel like you're, you're more loving and you're more tolerant and you're more accepting, you're more forgiving? Do you feel like you've seen growth in that area of your life? If you're not sure, you can ask someone who knows you best, hey, do you think I'm more loving than when we first met? <laughs> now be sweet when you answer that, but, <laughs> but also be honest. The Bible says speak the truth, but speak it in love. So there's love, and then there's, the Bible says there's joy. Remember, it's different than happiness. Uh, happiness is happenstance, circumstance. Uh, your happiness depends on your hap. If your hap is good, you'll be happy. If your hap is bad, you won't be. If your circumstance externally is good, you're going to be happy. If it isn't, you aren't. 
So it's not happiness, it's joy. You can be joyful though you're in an unhappy circumstance. You can have joy in a very troubled world. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, John 14, 1. He didn't say, let not your life be troubled. I've told you before, you can have a troubled life and an untroubled heart. The problems is when we go, what we go through out here gets in here. It affects the love. It affects the joy. Last weekend, I said it can affect your peace. God desires to bring serenity and to, to bring tranquility and to bring peace in your life. And by the way, you can have peace in the midst of a storm, right? Untroubled heart, troubled life. Sometimes you've heard this expression, sometimes God will calm the storm. Sometimes he just calms his child but God can bring peace in your life. And this weekend, I wanna take the next step, and I'm gonna talk about this idea of patience. Patience. Now, it's interesting because in the English word, and in your Bible, it's translated with four different words. And it's really interesting when you understand how each of those words kind of give you a different perspective on patience. Sometimes it's translated patience, sometimes it's translated long-suffering, sometimes it's translated endurance, as it is in a verse I'll read you in a moment. Um, sometimes it's, it's patience, sometimes it's long-suffering, sometimes it's uh, endurance, and sometimes it's, uh, let me hang on. Uh, Y'all look over there real quick. Okay, forbearance. There we go. <laughs> sometimes it's forbearance. It's, it's one of the ways whereby we understand patience. And so in Hebrews 12, there's a very practical way God works this out in our life. Hebrews chapter 12, let me share this with you. Look at verse 1, 2, and we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, the Apostle Paul, I think, was probably an athlete because a whole lot of his writings involves running, competing. He uses that imagery. He uses those metaphors to help us kind of come to terms with what life is like. And in this, he's using an athletic, he's using this metaphor of track and field. He's saying, guys, we are, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. He says, as, as though we're on the field and we are competing, but we're competing toward people in the sky who are observing us as we compete. We're surrounded. Now, it's interesting because sometimes he'll use a theater reference. Not just an athletic reference, he'll use a theater reference. For example, uh, he says, our lives are being lived out as a spectacle before seen people and unseen angels. Spectacle. The word spectacle in the Greek is theatron. We get the word theater. So what he's saying is your life and mine is being lived on a stage before people that can see us and those that can't. So again, he brings that imagery back and he's reminding us, look, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So, goes on to say, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us, here it is, run with endurance, patience, long-suffering, right? Endurance. And the other one I still can't remember. We'll get to it in a minute. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and has now sat down at the right hand of God. Now let's look at this a little bit. The first thing Paul reminds us of as he's talking about the way transformation works in our life and how patience impacts it, is he reminds us that there is an inspiration above us, that there are a cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us. Notice how the chapter begins in uh, uh, Hebrews 12. It opens with the word, therefore. 
Now remember, anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, always look and see what it's there for. It connects what he has just said with what he's about to say. He said, because we are surrounded with these cloud of witnesses. Now, who are the cloud of witnesses? Back in chapter 11, it talks about these incredible people that lived in the Old Testament that made a huge impact with their lives. Some are known, some lesser known, but all of them contributed, all of them paid a price, all of them made a difference so that they, all who would come behind them would benefit from their influence. I think the principle is for us to understand that we should always realize that people who have gone before us have paid a, paid a price and they have poured into our life and we are what we are and we are where we are largely because of the legacy of those who have gone before us, the legacy that they've left us. Think about the people that poured into your life. A mom, a dad, a grandparent, a coach, Somewhere, a teacher, somewhere in your life, you probably had someone who made a huge impact on your life. They made a, a major difference in your life. And Paul is trying to encourage, or the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them by saying, these people have left the stage, they have walked off the field, they have completed their part of the run, but now they're in the grandstands. And they're cheering you on. They're up there, their race is over, their part of the race is done, but now they're cheering you on. It, it's like a relay runner. When the relay runner hands the baton off to the one coming behind him, he doesn't just go to the car. He waits at the finish line to cheer the other runners on. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying, we are the writer of Hebrew. He's saying, which I think is Paul. But anyway, he, he's saying, you have people now who are cheering you on, who have lived before you and poured into you, and they're celebrating you. Let me color that a little more. In Luke 15, verse 10, the Bible says, listen to this, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents. The cloud of witnesses. Now, I don't know, honestly, how much information on the earth gets through to the people who are living in heaven today. I'm not sure. I know some information gets there because the Bible says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Well, how do they know unless some of that information reached them? By the way, it didn't say the angels are rejoicing. It says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one who repents. Well, why wouldn't the angels rejoice? Well, I'm sure they're happy about it. <laughs> but the angels have never been lost, so they don't know what it means to be found. The angels have never been away from God, so they don't know what it's like to be reconnected to God. But we were born with a sin nature, separated from God, and it's only through the finished work of Christ at the cross that we reconnect with him. So you and I, who are sinners, can rejoice, and we know what, we feel, what it feels like to be forgiven. So everybody in heaven is pulling for the people on the earth because they want us there one day. And when you, they hear another person that I've loved and another person that I've poured into, maybe a grandparent, as I said, maybe a parent who didn't get to see that child make that step of faith toward God, and they've heard that that child did, the Bible says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. So let me tell you, you've got some people who've gone before you that have left you a great leg legacy. They poured into your life. They're pulling for you. They're not on the field. It'd be nice if you could talk to them again and be nice if you could see them again, but they've left the field. When Paul was talking about his departure in 2 Timothy 4, he said, the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I kept the faith. Listen to this. I finished my course. He didn't say I finished the race. He said, I finished my part of the race. 
You see, you and I have a race to run. We have a course to run. And when that course is up, we hand the baton to our kids or those who will come behind us, those that we've poured into, and the race will be continued to be run. And we'll step into the stands and we'll go, go you. I'm pulling for you. So there is a, a, an inspiration above us. Listen to this. There's a race before us. Paul said, let's run the race. Did you know we're, we're to run a race? Did you know you, God has something for you to do? Do you know you're not an accident, you're an incident? God has a purpose and a plan for your life. We have a race to run. And it's interesting because in the Greek, the word race, you know what it really is? It's agona. Does that sound like another word in the English? It's very close to agona. Does it sound like agony? <laughs> it comes from the same root word. Sometimes life can be agona. <laughs> Sometimes the race is hard. And what I love about the Bible is it doesn't hide the ball or sugarcoat the fact that this life is hard. The race that we run is difficult. You can look at me and tell I haven't done a lot of running. I'm built more for comfort, not speed. <laughs> but what running I've actually done, I can tell you is hard. It's hard. We have runners in the church and they'll tell you there is a wall you hit and it's a difficulty, but if you're going to continue to run, you have to learn how to navigate the problems and the difficulties that you will encounter when you run. And Paul gets real practical because he says, hey runners, lay aside the weights and the sin that can take you off course. Now weight and a sin is two different things. A weight is a necessary thing. In fact, listen, the Bible talks about it in Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit not to lay any greater burden on you than what was necessary. If you work out and you go into the gym and you want to be stronger physically, at some point they'll make weights a part of your routine. And so they'll have you lift those weights because they know that there's strength in the struggle. And if you're going to get stronger, you have to lift weights. But if you're an athlete and you're competing or you're a runner and you're going to run a marathon or you're going to run you know, a, a, a race, what you don't take with you for the race are those weights. I mean, you, no runner's ever lined up to run the race and go, I got to go get those 20-pound dumbbells. I need, a, I need to run with those. No, you lay them aside. So he's saying there are things in your life that are necessary and important, but you have to know what things to set aside when it comes time to compete. There are some things you bear that are necessary, but there's some things you have to be discerning enough to know, I've got to set this aside. I can't do what I'm doing right now and deal with this. I need to set that aside. You need some discernment. And then sins are very different. Sins are things that cause us to miss the mark, the mark of God's expectation for our lives. Sin is missing the mark. And what he's saying here is sin can take you off course. Where you're doing so, so good, you're transforming, you're seeing great things happen, love, joy, peace. I'm seeing this developed in my life. And now all of a sudden, I've kind of given in to some weakness of my life. And before you know it, the weakness is, has called waywardness, and I'm running off course. I'm not running where I used to go. I don't have the same goals that I used to have. I, I, I don't have the same drive that I used to have. I, I, I just one day have an epiphany. I go, what's happened to me? I'm off course. And the best runners in the world can go off course. It's easy to go off course. In fact, there's a great verse. Again, Paul's carrying this running idea forward in Galatians 5, 7. Here's what he said. Listen to this. You did run well. There was a time when you were a great athlete. There was a time when you competed. There was a time when you ran well. But listen to how the, the rest of the verse goes. Who did hinder you? Who did hinder you? Something happened in your life to take you off course. Something hits your world to cause you to veer off track. 
And in Galatians 5, 7, he said it was a who. A who. It's not like Dr. Seuss. It was a who. Sometimes it's a who. Sometimes you encounter a person, maybe a betrayal. Um, maybe somebody lied about you. Somebody has, you know, I mean, Jesus was the perfect man, and yet he had a betrayer. So it's not an indictment on you if you pick a dud out of all your friends. We're all going to pick a few duds. You're going to have a joker in every deck of cards. <laughs> so I'm just saying that, but what, listen, what can happen is when you have those betrayals and when you have those experiences with people, if you're not careful, it'll take you off course. You say, I'll never trust anybody again. There's a devotional that talks about once a person has been betrayed and their heart is broken, there's a tendency to put your heart in a concrete vault and cover it. And saying by covering my heart in this concrete vault, no one will ever get to me and no one will ever hurt me again. But the devotional, I think, by Oswald Chambers goes on to say the problem with that is, though that's instinctive within us to protect ourselves, it isn't long, and listen, until your heart takes on the, the character of what is contained in. Your heart becomes cold. Your heart becomes dark. So I'm saying, none of us live to ourselves alone. Romans 14 says, none of us die to ourselves alone. God designed us to be relational. But you're going to get burned. You ever hear the expression, there's a sucker born every moment? Hear that growing up? A sucker born every minute, rather? Did you know where that came from? That was P.T. Barnum. Remember the circus? P.T. Barnum. And he said that because he had a friend who betrayed him a business partner that betrayed him, and it cost him a small fortune. He said it concerning himself. He said, well, there's a sucker born every minute. I mean, I trusted this guy. Paul was looking at people who ran well, people who were doing, who were goal they were doing great, and all of a sudden they encountered some knucklehead, and it took them off the course. Sometimes it's not a who, <laughs> it's a what. You deal with a difficulty, maybe a loss. There's just a, a reverse or something that just goes wrong, a health issue. It's not someone, but it's something. But let me tell you, the enemy doesn't care what takes you off the course just so he gets you off the course. Can I say this to your heart this morning? Watch the gauges of your life. Gauges. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said, I pray to God that your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord. Spirit, soul, body. We call it trichotomy. You're a spirit and a soul that inhabits a body. You're spiritual, you're emotional, you're physical. you got to watch the gauges. You have to be careful. If you're not careful, you'll start running on empty. I'm one of the physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, spiritually exhausted. And let me tell you something, because of your responsibilities, because of your duty, because of your life, you'll push through and you'll try to power through and you'll try to do it anyway, but eventually you're going to burn out. You, you can't give something you don't have any more than you can come from somewhere you've not been. So you have to constantly watch the gauges. The first thing you have to do is take care of yourself. You remember the great text where he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he said this, love your neighbor how? As yourself. Now he's not talking about some narcissistic weirdness. You know, narcissist was the Greek mythological figure that fell in love with his reflection in the pond. You ever known anybody like that? Some of you dated somebody like that. Enough about me, you talk about me. They date a mirror, right? I'm just suggesting that that's not what he's saying. He's saying you have a healthy self-image. 
You recognize the fact I'm fearfully, wonderfully made and God doesn't make junk. And so I'm healthy in my own skin. And because I am, I've got to take care of me or I'm not going to be in shape to take care of you. So take care of yourself spiritually and emotionally and physically or listen, you're going to go off course hurriedly. Let me give you the third thought. And this is really the heart of what God does. This is what keeps you going. It's what I've called the strength within us. He says, run, how? With endurance. Endurance. Patience. You're con- you're, but it's the same word, right? Remember, there are four. What does endurance mean? How, how do you distinguish it from patience? Endurance means simply to hold up under something. To hold up under something. Here's what I found. God will inevitably do one of two things in your life when you pray. He will either remove the burden from you or he will give you the strength to carry the burden. And listen, God only gives his heaviest burdens to his strongest kids. You ever prayed for something and it just didn't, something didn't change? It's not that God's not hearing you. It's just he knows what's best for you. How many times have I said, God only wants for you what you would want for you if you just knew what he knows? So when you pray and you say, God, this is too heavy, I can't, he's spotting you. He's saying, I got the bar. You've got more in you. You can do this. I promise you, I would not be standing over you and I would not be watching you. This wouldn't be happening if you you could get, well, you know what prayer is? It's pressing the problem upward. And when it comes right back down on top of you, it's because God is strengthening you. It's resistance training. He says the Ogona, the race that we're running, involves endurance. Sometimes God doesn't take the pressure. Sometimes he doesn't lift the burden. Sometimes he doesn't change the circumstance because he's strengthening his kids. You remember when the butterfly begins to emerge from the cocoon? The biology teacher says if you open the cocoon to assist the butterfly, you will weaken the butterfly and it won't have strength to live its life. Sometimes God allows the struggle because he's trying to strengthen his kids. Long-suffering, he said. That's another word. Long-suffering means patience. You know what that means? Long-tempered. How many of us are short-tempered? By the way, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> that's a work of the flesh. I can do short-tempered. Can you? If you don't think you have a short temper, let somebody on your way home in about five more minutes, six minutes, cut you off, and all of a sudden, you're going to find out. You've been blessed with a short temper. <laughs> What's in you comes out of you when you get bumped or squeezed, and something will come out of you. You're short-tempered. He's saying the fruit of the Spirit is long-tempered. It's just the opposite. Long-suffering. In fact, in 2 Peter 5, it says God is long-suffering to us. It just means it takes a whole lot to make him mad. So what's involved with this agona? What's God doing within us to strengthen us for the race? He's teaching us endurance. He's teaching us to be long-suffering. He's teaching us to be patient. Yeah, the word patient. You know what that literally means? It, it, it means to trust his timing. It has a sense of waiting with a, a anticipation it means I know something's going to happen. By the way, it's not a very passive word. It's a very aggressive word. Even the word wait, Susan talked about it a moment ago in Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. Remember, we were talking about being strengthened. What does waiting mean? It's not kick back, waiting on God to do something. Waiting is not uh, a passive, it's active for a little while. In a little while, you'll go to a restaurant probably, and you'll have a waiter. And the waiter will wait your table. 
Well, anyone who's ever waited tables would tell you that it's not passive, it's very active. You're attending to them and you're looking after them and you're making sure they have a good experience and you put a lot of effort into the person you are waiting on. What does it mean to wait on God? It means to look to him, listen for him, lean into him and lean on him. It means to live for him. It's in that period of time, remember the song said, he's in the waiting. That's the strength for the struggle. So it's being patient, it's being long-suffering, it's, it's being um, enduring, endurance, forbearance. It's another, it's the fourth word I couldn't remember, forbearance. forbearance. You hear that in financial terms sometimes, it's forbearance, it's to restrain or refrain from enforcing a thing, forbearance. Did you know forbearance and forgiveness are tied together? When you read Colossians 3.12, forbearing one another, he says, and forgiving one another. When you forbear someone, that means I'm going to go the second mile with you. I have every right to be angry with you, but I'm going to go the second mile with you. It's being willing to give up your rights for the benefit of someone else. It's like going to a red light. The red light changes to green, and you have every right to go, but here comes a semi. And this guy does not see that light, and he's going to come. Now, you can say, bless God, I got the right. That light's green. I got every right to go through the intersection, but you're going to see Jesus pretty soon. And he's going to look at you like, why didn't you just pump the brake? For the love of me, you should have given it more time. So the point is, we do this all the time. We see that it's going to benefit us sometimes not to exercise every right we have because it could cost us more. So forbearance is going the second mile with someone and being able to release them and forgive them. Here's the last thought. Here's how it all comes together. He talks about, lastly, the reward that is beyond us. He said, look to Jesus. Man, runners, when you're running, look to the finish line. You just know this is going to end. I, I got to get there. Uh, it's Back with a lot of our staff, we'd run the Cowtown Marathon, not the marathon, but the much shorter one. <laughs> and we were running, and of course, they had the numbers across your, your chest. And as you're going down Main Street in Fort Worth, if, as they see the numbers, the person there, the Hundreds, thousands of people there, not hundreds of thousands. I've told you a million times, I don't exaggerate. There are hundreds and hundreds of people there. And they're standing at the finish line. And when they see your number, they'll call it out. Hey, here comes blah, blah, blah. And they'll call your time out. Well, I didn't have a very good time. I mean, it wasn't a good time. And neither did the two guys running with me. And I knew what was about to happen. So I got them distracted. We got to talking about this. And so I just put my, like I was, uh, covered my number. <laughs> So they called my two buddies' number. Hey, we got so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so on their number. They're, oh, and everybody's laughing that knew us because we said, no, we're going we're to come in at a certain time, and we didn't. But the point is they were all at the finish line waiting for us, and we were so fixated and focused on the finish. You know what Jesus said? He said he, he endured the cross. That's the same word. He endured the cross. He held up under it. He did, he, he, there was nothing to put him to the cross. He, he didn't do anything wrong. He gave up his rights and went to the cross. He endured the cross because he saw the joy that was set before him. He had his eyes on the prize, and we were the prize. He had the joy that is set before him. So what is he saying? He's saying, keep your eyes on him. Let me give you this. Ignace Paderewski, or Ignace Paderewski uh, was the prime minister of Poland, and he was a concert pianist. And Paderewski wanted to perform a concert in one of the large cities in Poland. And so when it was announced that the prime minister was going to perform a concert, it just sold out. 
And one of the first people to buy a ticket on the front row was a woman whose son wanted to be a pianist and she was working with him and he had become a little discouraged. And so she thought he'll be inspired by the prime ministers. So I'm going to take him to this event. They're sitting on the front row and there's a magnificent Steinway up on the stage and the crowd is waiting in anticipation for the lights to come up and the concert to begin. The mom sees a friend down the way and she goes to talk to her friend. And while she's talking to her friend, her little boy did what little boys are prone to do when mamas walk away. Uh, they, he made it up on stage. And not only did he make it up on stage, he sat behind the piano. And all of a sudden in that moment, the lights came up. The audience looked to the stage in anticipation of Paderewski walking out. And instead there's a little boy sitting behind a piano picking out twinkle, twinkle, little star. And of course, there's a rumble through the audience of people laughing and the mother's horrified. And all of a sudden, the great Paderewski came from behind stage. He walks out on the stage and he tells the little boy, don't stop, keep playing. He reaches around him and on one end, he fills in the bass parts. On the other side, he puts in this running obligato as, as, as a little boy and he plays this amazing song just improvising while the little boy is just fumbling and stumbling with twinkle, twinkle, little star. And when it was over, they said the audience just stood and applauded the master and the little boy. And the little boy walked down so proud of himself, and I'm sure the mother was like, you're in real trouble here. But when I read that story, I thought, that's exactly it. You and I are like the little boy on stage, the little girl on stage. We're picking out, trying the best we can to get twinkle, twinkle, little star, and we mess up. We hit the wrong notes. We just get discouraged. Sometimes we just say, I'm done. And all of a sudden we feel the arms of God around us, whispering to us, don't stop, keep playing. There's something beautiful that's gonna come out of your life. There's a composition that's gonna come out of you. Don't stop, keep playing. One of the things that keep me going in the hardest parts of grief in the season that we're in is keeping my eyes on the goal. Knowing that one of these days, I'm gonna get where God has me to go. And knowing that every day that I'm running, there's somebody in the stands that's cheering for me. It's kind of a hard month for our family. 31st of this month will be the second year Cindy's been in heaven. And uh, hadn't got a lot easier. You don't spend 42 years of your life with someone and then be gone for two. You'll be okay with that, or at least that's not been my experience. But what keeps me running is to know that girl's at the finish line. And I feel like a lot of times she's cheering me on. Don't you quit. You and I started that church down there. You keep running. You keep going. Don't you stop. Breathe a little bit, rest a little bit, replenish yourself, but get back out there on the track or I'll come back one night, scare you to death. You better stay, <laughs> you better keep running, right? It motivates me. And can I say to your heart, I've gone a little long this morning, but can I say to your heart, there's somebody in heaven cheering you on right now. There's a heavenly father that loves you, who has his arms around you. And I don't know how heavy the load is you're carrying or how hard it may be but his arms are around you. And if he could say anything to you through this voice box, it would be, don't stop. Keep playing. You matter. Something amazing is going to come out of your life.
you keep running. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your encouragement. I pray for my friends this morning. You'll encourage them to keep running, keep playing. Don't give up and don't give in and don't give out. Rest, but re-engage. And Father, for those this morning who may never have trusted you as Savior, I pray for them, and I pray this might be the moment where they just humble their heart and swallow their pride and say, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart and forgive my sin. Be a reality in my life. And Lord, I'll give you thanks. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.